Hey everyone, Will here. I love dust facts. I just spent the last 48 hours staring continuously at Mars, trying to see its atmosphere with my own two eyes. And I'm here to tell you about the Astro Soundbite Sonification Competition. Oh hey everyone, I'm Melena. Sorry I'm late. <laughs> I was busy discovering Planet 10. <laughs> I discovered Planet 9 a few weeks ago, and I just had so much fun that I figured, why not discover another? Did you know that dust condensed from supernova ejecta is called Sunocon for short? <laughs> oh, Will, we need to talk about the sonification contest. The deadline is Wednesday, July 7th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Bonus points if you sonify an exoplanet transit. They're just the coolest. Yeah, and if you have no idea how to sonify, we just wrote an Astrobytes post all about it. I can't wait to hear all the space sounds about Astero seismology. Hey, Alex, uh, what you doing, buddy? <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> oh, you <clears throat> didn't expect you to get here already. I was just doing a couple of mic checks, so uh, uh, all good on my end. Cool, cool. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. I'm Milena Rice. Now that the summer solstice is over, I'm going to call myself a fifth year. Um, nice. at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a 14th year PhD student at Boston. <laughs> <laughs> this solstice is passed. All rules are off. Graduate already. <laughs> um, I guess that makes me a fourth year PhD student at uh, Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to episode 39, Polarizing Protostars. One of my favorite things about astronomy is our ability to piece together the origins of what we can observe. We take for granted the expanse of stars that might blanket the sky every night, but how was each of these stars born? Did they come into existence in an instantaneous flash of heat and light, or did they take their time, pulling together murky clumps of gas piece by piece? And finally, the question that always comes up in astronomy, what the heck is going on with those magnetic fields? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, these questions are the topic of today's episode, where we dive into the study of a star's astrophysical predecessor, the protostellar system. We have an astrobite, we have an interview, but first, we need Milena and Will to give us the rundown on how these stars form. So, Will and Milena, what makes a protostar different from either a planet or a star? Well, a protostar is similar to a planet in that it isn't fusing material at its core, but it's not necessarily forming around some other star, and it's created in a cloud rather than a disk of material. So protostars are produced when molecular clouds, which are big clouds of gas and dust in interstellar space, obtain over-densities over time, and they're created by turbulent motions that are constantly happening in those molecular fields that cause the gas and the dust to be constantly moved around and to reach higher densities in particular areas. So then an over-density occurs, the gas collapses, and you form a protostar? Yeah, so 
when you don't have these overdensities, then you might have something closer to hydrostatic equilibrium, which is where the self-gravity of an object, which holds it together, is equal to the pressure that is providing an outwards restoring force. The collapse of gas into a protostar occurs when the overdensities in the molecular cloud become large enough that the gravitational force overcomes that pressure force. So molecular clouds are also permeated by magnetic fields that we mentioned, and those can serve to prevent the collapse of the star. Those tend to be pointed outwards in the same direction as the pressure force and can help to prevent this collapse, but you actually get the collapse when gravity ends up winning over these other forces. As the protostar collapses, there is a problem, and the problem is conservation of angular momentum. Even a tiny bit of initial rotation in the cloud gets translated into faster and faster rotation as the material gets denser and denser. And in fact, the protostar would get so fast spinning, it would just rip itself apart without finding a way to dump angular momentum. So there is this theory of magnetic breaking which sort of solves this problem. And the way it works is the strong magnetic fields of the protostar couples to gas in an extended disk. And the reason it's coupled is because the magnetic fields are really strong and it, the dynamics mean that the gas orbits with the magnetic field as if they're in a rigid body. It's orbiting together, taking the angular momentum, and then gradually the gas moves further and further out. And as it does that, eventually it's lost, and with it, the angular momentum. So that is the theory on how protostars are able to spin down so they're not spinning so fast they rip apart. You'll hear about this in the interview we have for this episode. What are the different components of a protostellar system? Right, so the system around the pre-stellar core. It includes the forming star, so that's this core, and there's also a surrounding disk that's created due to the conservation of angular momentum as material falls into the star, so it starts spinning in order to conserve that angular momentum. And there are also jets that are shooting out of the star that are produced by interactions between the disk around the star and the magnetic field of the rotating star. And this causes material to be ejected from the star's magnetic poles in a sometimes erratic manner. So the jets aren't necessarily being shot out at a constant rate. And there's also an envelope of material that is surrounding the star in its earlier phases. So this envelope ends up sort of disappearing over time, but in the early stages of star formation, it has this sort of envelope of material surrounding it as well. So this actually sounds like a pretty complex system as opposed to just one isolated body. There's a whole series of dynamics going on. I'd imagine that protostellar systems can be pretty diverse. Are there different types of protostellar systems? Yes, there are many types. The types follow a track of evolution from the molecular cloud eventually to a young star. And they're given names, class 0, 1, 2, and 3. So that kind of makes sense that they follow a path. Indexed in the same way as Python. Oh, true. Yes. <laughs> Big fan of zero indexing. <laughs> but a class 0 is effectively the beginning of the collapse. So the molecular cloud is over dense in some regions. The pressure is building up. And then eventually you get to hydrostatic equilibrium with a higher temperature. So the cloud is cold, class zero gets warm, but it's still in equilibrium, not all the way collapsed. And you start to see emissions pop up in the millimeter wavelengths. Then you move to class one. This is actually what they call the protostar. 
the class one is accreting, meaning it has an initial disk that's close in. In falling matter gets heated up. We're talking about, you know, 700 degrees Kelvin, maybe as a maximum temperature. And you get in the spectrum a black body from the protostar and an infrared excess from the surrounding disk of dust and gas material. So you see in the spectrum these two distinct features, which is how you know you're looking at a protostar. Hmm. The next step is class two, which is often called a classical T Tauri star. And these are the crazy strong magnetic fields, some of the strongest in any type of stellar system. And then you start bumping up the temperature to real stellar temperatures, say in the range of thousands of Kelvin, maybe up to two or three thousand Kelvin. And this is often called pre-main sequence. So it's technically past the protostar at this stage, but it is still along this track of not on the main sequence yet. And you still have the black body emissions from the star plus the disk emissions that show up in the spectrum. Yeah, and that's the point where the envelope disappears. So that was why I was kind of like, oh, there is an envelope sometimes, depending on when. So it disappears at class two. So it's sounding like class one is kind of the characteristic protostar that you might think of, whereas class zero is maybe more of like a, a proto-proto star, and a class yeah. two is maybe mm -hmm. closer to a star than a protostar. Sure, yeah, I would say so. Um, because T Tauri stars are sort of their own animal. But just to finish up the story here, the class threes are called weak T Tauri stars, and those have now very little infrared excess in the spectrum, mostly the black body from the star itself, still a little bit of dust, so you can see that by looking at the spectrum. And at this point, they are on the pre-main sequence Hayashi track on the HR diagram. So what that means is they're going to stay about the same temperature for a while, but they're way more luminous than they will be when they enter the main sequence. This is what happened for our sun. It was many times more luminous, and then the luminosity dials down, and then it enters a little strip on the HR diagram called the Henye track, which is the last little jump, a little bit increase in temperature, and then it's on the main sequence. I wrote an astrobite about some of the history of this because the person who's really responsible for proving that the Hayashi track and the Henye track work as they do is Dilhan Eriart, a Turkish-American astronomer who doesn't really get all the credibility she deserves. So I wrote an astrobite about her last year. Hmm. Cool. Very cool. And in practice, all of these objects are classified by the shapes of their spectral energy distribution. So I think that's usually how we decide which of these objects it technically is. It's kind of hard to actually resolve everything that's happening because star formation is just such a messy process. Exactly. These are the SEDs, which are a lot like a spectrum, which we talked about in the previous episode. Right. Very mm -hmm. similar to a spectrum, technically different, but yes, absolutely. Will, how long does it take to go from a class zero object all the way through to class three? It's actually surprisingly quick to go from a cloud to a protostar. So that's a class one, only like 30,000 years or less. So wow. in cosmological time, that's quick. And mm -hmm. then from a protostar to join the main sequence is about... 10 million years and 9 million of that is after class three. So it kind of gets going quick and then it's a long period to join the main sequence. And then of course, these stars will burn for 10, 20 billion years on the main sequence or maybe even longer. So, you know, it does sort of grow exponentially in how much time is in each stage. Hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, maybe this makes sense because it's unstable, right? It can't stay unstable for a long time. So these mm -hmm. instability phases are relatively short. Whereas once you have a quasi equilibrium, you can stay there for a while. Right. Mm -hmm. My last question 
what is polarization and how can polarization maps teach us about protostars? Yeah, so polarization is a property of light that tells you in what direction the electric field vectors are pointing. Polarization is commonly defined by four Stokes parameters, I, Q, U, and V, where Stokes I quantifies the total intensity of the light beam, while the Q, U, and V parameters just tell you how much of the light is polarized in each direction. So polarization maps can tell us about the distribution of materials in protostellar systems because the dust grains surrounding the forming protostars emit thermal radiation, and the dust grains tend to be asymmetric and elongated. In the presence of magnetic fields, they can become preferentially aligned in one direction, and they preferentially then absorb light along their longer axis and produce a global polarization signal that we observe with our telescopes on Earth. All of these dust grains are going to give off thermal radiation, and that radiation then gets scattered off of all these surrounding grains in something called self-scattering. And it's believed that that's actually the reason that we see this polarization in millimeter observations of protoplanetary disks. We're just seeing the thermal radiation that comes off of these dust grains getting scattered towards us, and it gets polarized because of these asymmetric shapes of the dust grains that can tell us about the distribution of the grains and what they actually look like in the system. And the upshot of all of this is we get to sense the magnetic field via the polarization. And that's a big deal because it's very hard to see magnetic fields. Right. So it's like an indirect way to probe the magnetic field. And you mentioned, Will, magnetic fields potentially playing a strong role in the evolution of the protostar. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, those were awesome answers. But to really see how all these pieces are going to fit together, we should hear it from an expert. And that's why a few days ago, we sat down with Aaron Cox, a Sierra postdoctoral associate at Northwestern University, who patiently presented her published paper on the polarization properties of particular protostars. <laughs> That's some good alliteration. <laughs> now, we're going to be talking about your paper, Alma's Polarized View of 10 Protostars in the Perseus Molecular Cloud. So we've talked a little bit about what a protostar is and what can cause polarization in these systems. I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about the scales involved in the types of polarization that we observe? So what is the characteristic size of different dust grains in the system? And how strong of magnetic fields would you need to induce a polarization signature? So that's a great question. We were looking at the inner envelope and disk size scales, so kind of the interface between the two. So really probing between maybe about 1,000 AU down to 100 AU. Your question about dust grain sizes is a little complicated because that's an active research topic in star formation. But we know that kind of the characteristic dust size in a cloud is about one micron. That's the typical dust size in the ISM. And we know that by the time it's reached the envelope stage, it's probably larger than that. So maybe dust grain distribution of around 100 microns, though it could be larger than that. And the average magnetic field is also a little difficult. We need different observations to directly find the strength of the magnetic field. But we have ways that we can infer it with dust polarization some estimates are around maybe 10 to 100 microgauss in the envelope, 
And then as you reach disk scales, it increases. So as you contract, the magnetic field strength increases. And in some systems, we see maybe closer to a thousand microgauss in the like disk. You mentioned that the dust grain size distribution changes over time. And I was curious why that is. Is it because of like winds from the stars it's forming or something else? So essentially, you have collisions between dust grains and they collide and they stick and then they grow up to a certain amount. I think it's about one centimeter until you start to get issues with breaking apart. Mm -hmm. A topic that seemed to come up in reading your paper was magnetic breaking. Can you explain what that is and what role it might play in evolution of protostars? Definitely. So magnetic fields are basically important throughout all stages of the collapse. So from the clouds down to the clumps and cores, down to the collapse of the protostar. And so we know that when we have our cores, our hydrostatic cores that are collapsing into this protostar, they contain angular momentum. And they contain a lot of angular momentum. So disks are a good way of getting rid of angular momentum. But magnetic fields are also a way that the infalling material can lose their angular momentum and therefore create stars. So essentially, magnetic breaking occurs with the infalling material loses its angular momentum, and then a disk doesn't have to form because we have lots of angular momentum in a different way. So is it the case that Magnetic breaking occurs in a couple of systems, and in those cases, we won't form a disk around the protostar? Or do all systems have magnetic breaking? That is something we've been researching in the last maybe 10 years with the advent of these high-sensitivity and high-resolution interferometers, such as VLA and ALMA, really being able to look to see if we can test the theory of magnetic breaking with our observations. What we're seeing is that the orientation between the magnetic field and the angular momentum vector, which is how we test if magnetic breaking should be strong, it's actually a random orientation. So what we're seeing is that maybe magnetic breaking isn't as much of an issue as we thought it was, but we are seeing maybe some types of trends where systems that have large angular momentum, such as binary systems, that they do have a magnetic field that's orthogonal to its rotation axis, which is how we test magnetic breaking observationally. In this study, you measured the polarization of 10 protostars with ALMA, potentially the polarization measurements between the envelope and the disk. Yes, we have different ways of looking at this. So the envelope is separate from the disk, but they're together, right? The envelope feeds onto the disk. So I was looking at what we call the inner envelope, so the area that's closest to the disk, and we measured the magnetic field in this area. How did you pick the 10 protostars? These protostars were part of a previous survey done by John Tobin, the Van Dam survey, which looked at 94 protostars in the Perseus molecular cloud. He chose those based off of the Spitzer catalog, the C2D observations. And then from there, I chose these because I thought that they were going to be simple structures. So, you know, when you're looking for things like magnetic breaking, you want the simplest sources possible. You don't want to be confused by binaries, by multiple systems. 
And you also do want to cherry pick, essentially. You want bright sources because then you're more guaranteed to get a mission as opposed to the dimmer sources. However, when we made the cuts, we thought they were simple sources. Turns out that they actually weren't quite as simple as we thought they were. So one of the targets per M2 is actually a triple system, which has quite interesting velocity structure. And it was one of the sources that had a really exquisite magnetic field or polarization map. But it was also very confusing to try to determine what was happening. When you say triple system, you mean three protostars? Yes. And I believe that two are pretty close together. So they're really dynamically interacting with each other. When you realized that system was a triple, was it exciting and kind of cool to see? Or were you frustrated that it was going to be much harder than you thought? (laughs) So I was pretty excited. In fact, John Tobin, who was the PI of the Van Dam project, he was actually the one who published the data showing the interaction between the three stars. And I mean, it's a beautiful image, just the amount of the low-level emission you can see. You can actually like see this dust emission just like arcing over the different protostars. It's really cool. It's frustrating when you're wanting to do a simple analysis, but the power of ALMA is that we get to see really in-depth to these exciting objects. And binary systems are not rare, right? I don't know how hard you have to dig to find these simple systems with just one protostar and no interactions. Yeah, so that's actually something that we're dealing with in a lot of data is that things that we thought were simple as we start to get higher resolution images, we start to see, oh, no, it has a it has a little friend next to it. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how easy it will be to get these single systems, but we're still able to do statistics on these more complicated objects and still able to infer It takes a little bit more work. Got it. So what signatures were you looking for in the polarization maps of these objects? We were looking for whether or not the inferred magnetic field was parallel to the angular momentum axis or if it was misaligned or orthogonal. So if it's perpendicular, then we expect efficient magnetic braking in systems, and if it's perpendicular or misaligned, then we expect less efficient magnetic braking. As you probably have seen in the images, it's not clear if the magnetic field is perpendicular or parallel. What do the patterns look like to you? I guess the most striking thing that we found was that there is a very definitive area where the polarization vectors were really well ordered and the polarization percentage was much less. So this was seen mostly in the inner part of the objects, so disk-like scales. So not all of these targets actually have confirmed disks in them. So we called them disk size scales, about 100 AU. And that's where we saw really ordered polarization vectors. And then outside of that, we saw really more disordered vectors. And that was surprising Though our interpretation was that the more disordered was coming from the envelope and was actually indicative of aligned grains with the magnetic field, whereas on disk scales and particularly in the confirmed disk sources, that the actual polarization mechanism was not 
magnetic fields. It was actually uh, something called self-scattering. You mentioned that difference between the alignment and the misalignment as a polarization hole. Is that right? Yes. So the polarization hole has been seen throughout observations of magnetic fields where you have a lot of total emission or Stokes I emission. So in the center of these bright sources, you start to see a decrease in the polarization percentage. And so there's a few reasons this can happen. Maybe the most obvious is that polarization percentage is measured against Stokes I. So if you have a higher emission, you're dividing by a larger number, therefore the total number gets smaller. But it can also be indicative of a tangled field. So if you are tracing the magnetic field with your polarization observations and you have a messy field, then you get cancellation in the polarization percentage. So you don't recover all of it. Another reason for it could be the competing polarization mechanisms. So I briefly mentioned self-scattering. Inside of these objects in the very center, we can have very large grains, so maybe even up to a millimeter or more. So we're talking like pebbles. And these grains might not be well aligned with the magnetic field, and they might be producing self-scattering instead. And so you can have competition between the mechanisms. And do you have a sense for whether these mechanisms change at all over the evolution of the protostellar system? Did the systems that you look at, were they all in the exact same evolutionary spot? So they mostly were. They were mostly class zero sources. We had two class one sources. And the class one sources were definitely different. Class ones don't have as much of their natal envelope surrounding them. So we saw really compact polarized emission from those two sources. The way we thought of it, and I think the way the field is thinking of it, is that once a disk forms in these objects, so, you know, that might happen in the class zero stage, definitely happens by the class one stage, the emission from the disks isn't from aligned grains. The polarized emission isn't necessarily from aligned grains. It's more from self-scattering inside of these disks, and that has to do with the high-density of the disks, so you get anisotropic radiation inside of the disks, and they actually self-scatter the dust grains. And so we're hoping that actually self-scattering can be a way to determine how evolved a system is. That's still kind of in the works. Theoretical simulations are still coming out about that, but we're, we're hoping that not all is lost since it doesn't seem to be possible to probe the magnetic fields of the disks once they reach a certain certain stage. That's really interesting, though, and it kind of leads into my next question. Are there any follow-up observations that would be perfect for better clarifying what the polarization mechanisms are, or maybe do you just need to build up a bigger sample of objects? The way that we will definitively determine this is by multi-wavelength polarization observations. Some studies have been done with different different disks. It's still maybe only, I think, less than five objects, so not that many, not great for statistics. And looking particularly with ALMA at three different bands to see how the polarization signature changes with wavelength. The reason that we do this is that scattering depends heavily on wavelength, so its emission falls as lambda to the four. So as you increase your wavelength, you should expect less emission from scattering. 
So we've seen this with H.L. Tao in particular. That's an older source. That's a class two source. But they've seen a difference in the polarization signature using these multi-wavelength observations. However, some people have gone in to look at different targets and there's no change. So it really seems to be system dependent. Hmm. But that in and of itself is still interesting because, you know, you start to see, maybe you'll start to be able to build up like, okay, these types of systems, you will get it. And then these, you won't get scattering, but you really do need the multi-wavelength observations to determine. Yeah. So it's just a matter of getting a lot of these ALMA observations then and setting it up in the different configurations for the different wavelength regimes. Exactly. And, you know, polarization observations are expensive in the sense that you need to cover at least three hours in your observations. So even if your target only takes 10 minutes of on-source time, you need your full observations for your calibrators to actually go three hours, basically just to calibrate. Wow. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for some different types of follow-up besides the multi-wavelength. So learning like how the gas is flowing. So that's one thing we didn't touch on in the paper. You know, we're thinking as the gas is collapsing, it's going to kind of morph these dust grains essentially and change the polarization signature. And so if we can see, you know, how some of these gas tracers might actually be aligned with where the polarization is seen and then also where it's not seen, right? That was also a striking thing was that Sometimes we had a lot of polarization emission in an area where we didn't have a lot of Stokes I, but then in places that had maybe the same amount of Stokes I emission, we didn't see any polarized emission. And so maybe kind of looking to see what the gas is doing and how it's morphing these observations, I think that'd be really interesting. Stupid question, but I would naively think that if a gas is collapsing into a protostar, there would be inflows that you could measure. What would cause outflows? So the outflows are a direct consequence of the collapse. So once you actually collapse down into a protostar, you essentially blow out the poles. So as it's spinning, you create the disk and it's just a very like violent Maybe not very violent compared to something like supernovae, but <laughs> pretty pretty violent expelling of the gas mm-hmm. just through outflows. And that's just a consequence of the gravitational contraction. It's so interesting that there are like these crazy jets that are happening in young planetary systems. Like it's not something that I ever think about that closely because I've always worked on older planetary systems, but there's just like so much happening in the young systems. Yeah, it's cool hearing about what we might learn from getting more detailed observations of the gas dynamics itself because yeah, these systems are far more complex than I ever imagined them being. Yeah, and if you can figure out where all your systems come from, understand the different evolutionary phases, then you can eventually piece together more about planet formation. Well, thanks very much, Aaron, for that interview. And now that it's over, that means it's time for our bi-weekly dose of polarization pop and formation funk. I am ready for a very funky sound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now the pressure's on.
spooky. Yeah. Huh. Let's see. I recall hearing something like this a while back, and I might be confusing it with something else, but I'll lob in a guess of a type of plasma wave in the Earth's atmosphere. Maybe they were called like uh, chorus waves or something like that. Huh. Very cool. So it's not that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there, there were background sounds that kind of sounded like wind or something. So that made me think it was probably something in the solar system and not like a sonification of a galaxy or anything like that. The immediate thing that came to mind was New Horizons, but I don't actually know if that had audio. So maybe not. (laughs) But something in the solar system. That's sort of my guess. So it is a sonification from the people over at System Sounds. We've used their audio before. Mm. And it's actually a sonification of an image. This is Hubble Space Telescope's very famous image of the Pillars of Creation. Oh, Oh, actually, that does make sense because you can still have noise in images. <laughs> and there are background stars and things like that right, that create yeah. that background audio. But the kind of whooshing, that's the these kind of iconic towers of dust and gas that sit at the center of the Eagle Nebula. And they're like four or five light years on one side. They're huge. And like you typically do, Melina, I went thematic with this audio. So I picked it because the Pillars of Creation are part of an active star forming region in the Eagle Nebula. Mm. So it's currently forming new stars and the ultraviolet light from those stars illuminates the entire structure, but that also erodes the pillars over time. So they're slowly breaking down. Oh, sad. Was this like an optical image or a polarization map? It was an optical image. It would be very cool (laughs) if it was a polarization map. If anybody wants to sonify a polarization map and submit it for a sonification (laughs) contest, it would be very amenable to hearing that audio. A subtle plug. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you for that space sound. Loving the thematic stuff. Yeah, very much in line with uh, your space sounds, Melina. (laughs) And now Will is going to bring us a gift in the form of his own astrobite. So the astrobite I have for you all today is called Inflating H2 Regions Cause Star Formation to Pop. And this was written by Ashley Picone uh, about a paper written by DeVarge and others, published in the Astrophysical Journal this year. So could you tell us what an H2 region is? Absolutely. That is the perfect place to start. Astronomers love to invent descriptive yet confusing symbols. (laughs) And so H2 is written H with two Roman numeral I's, if you're not looking at it and listening to it. And that means that the hydrogen is singly ionized, which is confusing because it's two, but (laughs) astronomers do H1 as neutral hydrogen. And then for molecular hydrogen, that's H with a subscript two, but we just call that molecular hydrogen. So H2, it's ionized hydrogen. It's basically a cloud of protons. And this there's plenty of hydrogen in the universe. So if there is an ionizing source of UV radiation nearby a cloud of hydrogen, it will become ionized. And the best ionizing source is a young, massive star. So the young, massive star creates this ionized cloud around it. So H2 regions exist in the interstellar medium, right? How are they related to molecular clouds and star formation? Well, so it's it's complicated because the cloud will be molecular if it's cold enough and neutral. And when the young star starts to ionize it, it's going to strip off the electrons and it's going to become a cloud of H2 region. So 
then that expanding H2 region will actually blow up like a balloon hmm. into a neutral region beyond it. And that's sort of the crux of this paper. And that's all wrapped into star formation. So that's what they're trying to understand here. So how did the paper investigate H2 regions? Right. So the idea of H2 regions and star formation is a link that's been known for a long time, but not a well-understood link. And so there are these ring-like structures around the H2 regions of the molecular hydrogen that actually gets shocked. And then there's some turbulence. The turbulence churns up the magnetic fields from the young star, which were previously interwoven into the ionized hydrogen, because once it's ionized, it can go with the magnetic field that has a charge. So now you have this existing magnetic field that's all turbulence and messed up. And then the turbulence can actually create some overdensities, can actually break the equilibrium, and you get some new star formation as the clumps start to emerge. Hmm. So just to make sure I'm fully following, we start with an H2 region. Yeah. It's near some ionizing source, and we're trying to figure out how you actually get to the point where you have a molecular cloud and have star formation from your initial just like normal ISM. Right. So the molecular cloud's already there. Some of it becomes ionized near the young star, and then they sort of collide the expanding ionized bubble into the neutral bubble, and then everything gets messy. Oh, so they're <laughs> so the H two region is separate from the molecular cloud, but they're interacting. Exactly, they're they're separate, but they're pretty close, and they start to merge. That's an interesting idea because I feel like if you had a young star that ionized its surrounding region, then it would halt star formation in the immediate surroundings because you wouldn't have molecules anymore, right, to collapse and cool. But now it sounds like you're suggesting that there could be a star that catalyzes nearby star formation based on its interaction of its H2 region with the surrounding molecular cloud. You're 100% right. The H2 region will destroy any future stars forming in the near vicinity. But then further away, yes, it can actually catalyze it. That's exactly right. Hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's complicated. The story is nice, but it doesn't check out with all the data yet. So what these authors were doing is studying a specific star-forming complex that's known to have H2 regions, young stars, new star formation. It's, it's a ball of fun. And it's called <laughs> S235. And I'm guessing that they took polarization measurements of this region? Exactly. That's one of the fun things about this whole work is they're tying in the polarimetry because they need to know about the magnetic fields and the polarimetry is a lens to see magnetic fields. So the instruments that they used, one of them was actually built by the chair of the BU astronomy department um, on the telescope that BU owns in Arizona. So sort of a claim to fame and the <laughs> instrument is called Mimir. So what they have is a lot of near-infrared images taken by Spitzer, taken by the 2-micron all-sky survey, 2-mass, and others. And then they lay on top of that their polarization map from Mimir and sort of compare the features to the magnetic fields. And what they find is the main H2 region in S235 has polarization going around the outside like a ring. So the magnetic field actually traces a circle around the H2 region. Now that's not what you'd expect normally because the magnetic field without the disruption from the H2 region should be sort of a background and it should be just kind of linear cutting through the system due to the galaxy. So this is a clear disruption of the magnetic field from the H2 region. 
Okay, so they see that maybe the magnetic field is not looking the way that they would expect if you weren't to have this H2 region, but then how do they connect the dots to say, we expect this disruption to cause other stars to form? Well, they looked at clumps in, that's the technical term, clumps, <laughs> in the cluster, and there are 11 clumps of interstellar material. So these are where stars are going to form. Oddly reminiscent of Milena's point earlier that everything in space is either a, what, a sphere, a disc, or a blob. Right. Yeah. These are blobs. <laughs> yeah, that, that made me think of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> so these clumps are where the neutral hydrogen material is being mixed up and turbul turbulated? You can't say turbulated. That's not a word. You just uh, said it. It's a new <laughs> word. Invented. <laughs> You're the Shakespeare of our time. Well, they are turbulated <laughs> by the H2 region. And what they see using the polarization is that there's a lot of magnetic energy in the clumps. So it's actually the magnetic fields that are dominating the evolution of the clumps. It's not gravity and it's not pressure that are the dominant forces. It's the magnetic fields. So the magnetic fields govern star formation. And in this case, actually, they shut it off. The magnetic field is too strong to allow the clumps to further collapse. They're collapsed a little, but not enough to form stars. But there must have been star formation in the past because they see other young stars. So does that mean these clumps will just never become stars? They'll just be like continued over densities or will they dissipate over time or what happens to them? It's not really known. But in the current regime... <laughs> magnetic conditions prevail. So another thing that that means is if you do have stars form, the magnetic fields must be weaker in those scenarios then, right? Yes. Something has to disrupt the magnetic fields. Something had to in the past, otherwise there wouldn't be the stars that they see now. This must have happened before with the existing young stars that were clumps. Now they're stars. And so it could happen again, but we don't know for sure. That's, that's the murkiest part of this. So I started off this astrobite sort of giving you a story of how this whole thing progresses with an expanding H2 region. Now let me retell the story with magnetic fields involved. So before the H2 region begins expanding, magnetic fields were in equilibrium with gravity. We call this magnetostatic equilibrium. It's like hydrostatic, but some magnetism. Then the H2 region expands into the neutral hydrogen. It sweeps up the hydrogen, it collects the hydrogen, and it shocks it. So there's a, there's a shock front where the material is creating turbulence. Now turbulence is actually breaking magnetostatic equilibrium. Turbulence overcomes magnetic fields, and now you get over densities. Those collapse, and those form stars while the magnetic fields were too weak because the shock fronts, the turbulence, was too strong. That took over 100,000 years or so. Then the turbulence decayed, and things became more orderly. The H2 region stopped expanding so quickly and we had a new equilibrium come into place. Magnetic fields are back as the dominant player. And since the magnetic fields are strong, nothing's going to collapse. They're sort of rigidly holding the clumps, slightly collapsed, but not all the way collapsed. And it's gravitationally stable for the moment. Do they have any sense for whether this is a common way that stars form? <laughs> because I wonder if there are specific shock conditions. I mean, you need to be gentle enough that you don't ionize the molecular cloud, but... I guess, intense enough, energetic enough that you then limit the ability of the magnetic field to inhibit star formation as well. Yeah, I was going to ask what exactly determines what the strength of that magnetic field is, and maybe it's the proximity to these other sources, like the UV sources that you mentioned. 
Yeah, that's my understanding as well, that because this is a complex star-forming cluster, that all of these things are happening together. And say, when our sun formed, I don't think it was anywhere near other stars like this. So there weren't any large sources of ionizing radiation or strong magnetic fields. So that's, I think, a complicating factor. So there's like a turbulation zone around there. We, can, we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it, this is fun, isn't it? This is kind of crazy stuff. And I think part of the joy of reading and learning about this field is there's a lot of great data and innovation, but the story is really not so clear and crystal yet. There's, there's a lot of work to be done. That's a great summary, but I have a feeling it's not your one sentence summary. I demand that turbulation is somewhere in there. <laughs> <laughs> Studying the star-forming complex S235 is helping astronomers connect polarization to magnetic fields to H2 regions to turbulation, all in the hopes of better understanding star formation. Incredible. <laughs> better than I had hoped it would be. And we need to hear Aaron's one-sentence summary. Yeah, so let's hear that now. We did the first ALMA survey of polarization in class zero sources to look for magnetic breaking and found polarization was much more complicated on small scales such as envelope and disks and learned that self-scattering is very common inside of disk sources. Now, in hearing about both of your introductions and in doing a little digging myself, I've learned that a protostar is a different kind of object than a pre-main sequence star, and both of those objects are considered young stellar objects or YSOs. Is all this just semantics, or is there real value to breaking down each stage of the formation of a star like this? I mean, I think the differences are similar to the differences between class 0, 1, 2, 3, but I believe that these terminologies are more focused on not just the observations, but more specifically what the object actually is. Um, so again, like class 0, 1, 2, 3 is really determined based on the spectral energy distribution and is less of a physical description. There are sort of broad physical descriptions of what we expect to be happening at each stage, but it's really like a very observational classification system, whereas these names of young stellar objects and pre-main sequence stars, etc., I think are a little bit more focused on physically what's actually happening in the system. So I think that this is sort of the ongoing issue of astronomy, like naming things before we totally understand what they are, <laughs> and then like having to backtrack and try to change names to actually match what is happening in those systems. But it's still useful to go through that process because it helps us to put names on things once we actually understand what they are, but also to be able to distinguish between different types of signals. Um, it's just important to then disentangle after the fact which is which, like which is just a description of a signal versus physically what we think is happening. But it's also tough because like a, a pre-main sequence star is not a star, right? Yeah. I mean, same with like a, a planetary nebula it has nothing to do with planets. So it's, you know, astronomy terminology. Now, Melina, I think your summary on this is pretty good. These really are separate classes. And I think the numbering here makes good sense. Some of the names are a little funky, but another use for the different classifications here is that the spectral energy distributions for these objects look really different. And if you're modeling the evolution of these objects and 
the observable, which is the spectral energy distribution, so you can do the reverse, take an unknown spectral energy distribution and determine what object it is, then you sort of want to have discrete classes, each of which has different properties that dominate in the model, and magnetic fields are more important here, and gas dynamics are more important here, and so on and so forth. Right? You need to sort of have all these pieces. So, yes, there is a lot of semantics, but this is, I think, semantics for good, not semantics for evil. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's kind of hard to put classifications on things that are, like, actively transitioning. And so that's why it ends up getting kind of messy, because it's not a set, like, this is an F star on the main sequence that stays stable for a really long time. Like, all of these objects are actually, by definition, changing and are not just, like, one static thing. But it's still worth having those names to try to disentangle what all of those steps are within the transition. That's fair. Well, we don't have time for a lot more discussion, so let's end it there. And I'll say that concludes episode 39 polarizing protostars. Aaron's research results have recently been summarized in an astrobite called Opening the Envelope on Protostars by Ashley Pacone. Ooh, Ashley, real MVP today. <laughs> Ashley, <laughs> we should really be asking her these questions. <laughs> if you'd like to read that astrobite or the other one we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. We're taking a break for the next month to work out the details of some exciting new directions for the podcast, so you won't be hearing from us for a little while. If you find yourself struggling to make it through the day because you haven't heard a dust fact in a while, because you don't have anyone to discuss the philosophical implications of your research with, <laughs> or because you just can't seem to remember why the dynamics of planetary systems are so cool, <laughs> go check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. While you're at it, submit a space sound or send us an email at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. And fear not. The deadline for the sonification contest is still July 7th, it hasn't changed, and we'll announce the results just as soon as we get back. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Hey everyone, Will here. I love dust bags. <laughs> Maybe we can't do this a second time. <laughs> I'll just, you know what? Yeah, go, go.